So I think that, you know, for me, if I was completely in charge of whatever company I'm running, in two, three years, I'd be very comfortable hiring someone who does not have a college degree, who is self-taught, who went through certificates, who can prove that, that they've done whatever they've done through a portfolio. I don't think large corporations or a lot of companies that are less flexible are as interested in doing that. One, because that's a very useful heuristic for dealing with a lot of candidates. So to me, I believe that what you can learn online is on par, if not better in some cases than what you can learn in school and a lot cheaper. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bit.ly.com forward slash A-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is all about the big picture. He's a consultant and data scientist specializing in sports analytics who earned a bachelor's in economics from Townsend University, a master's in marketing and management from the University of Virginia, and a master's in computer science from DePaul University. Over the past five years, he's amassed an arsenal of analytic techniques, flexing his skill in analyzing sports and business problems. And along the way, he's developed a passion for using data and common sense to generate simple, implementable solutions to complex problems. His love of sports and skill in data science has led to his working with three major sports organizations, including the PGA and DraftKings. More recently, though, he's been fascinated by the increasingly quantitative nature of decision making and has made it his mission to stay up to date with the newest technologies and analytic techniques. But you may recognize him from YouTube, where he's amassed over 104,000 subscribers and over 2.6 million video views. So please help me welcoming our guest today, the Z by HP and NVIDIA Data Science Global Ambassador, Kenneth B. G. Ken, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on to the show today, man. I really, really appreciate having you here. Thanks for having me. I, you know, I, I think the intro hyped me up a little too much. You know, I'm just a guy who likes data science, likes making videos on the internet, and just likes talking to people, sharing knowledge and learning stuff. Man, I mean, that is very, very true because that authenticity shows through in your videos and the work that you do. And if it was not there, you wouldn't have had that 104,000 subscribers. Congratulations, by the way, on hitting 100K subscribers. I saw you flexing the the uh, plaque there from YouTube. So tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Tell us about that award that you got there. Is that an award? So, is that a plaque? What is that? So the, the silver play button came in uh, yesterday, yesterday or two days ago. And so it's when you pass 100,000, they send you one of these with your name on it and, and the stuff. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I thought I'd be like more excited. I thought it'd be it's like, oh, this crazy milestone. But I've been really fortunate that there's been incredible growth along the way. There's been 
you know, like a, a subscriber account, it's just like, it's a number, right? Mm-hmm. But the individual comments that people leave, the, the individual touches that I have with people where someone's like, oh, you know, this really helped me to my first internship or I never thought about it that way. Like I'm going to start a project tomorrow on this because I'm really passionate about it. Those mean so much more than just kind of an amorphous number out there. And, you know, yes, like I'm so grateful for every person who has subscribed to my channel, but I'm trying to do everything I can to encourage a community to be built, a a kind of ecosystem around data science, around sports analytics, around learning. And that's something that is just as meaningful, far more meaningful, actually, than, than just how many people, like, you know, follow me on an Internet platform. Yeah, I mean, but you're engaged with the audience. Like I've looked through the comments, you're either tapping that like or you're replying to everybody on there, which is amazing that you're that engaged with their community. And so everybody kind of knows you from that data science angle, but let's get to know you, you know, outside of of data science. Talk to us about where you grew up and what was it like there? Yeah, so I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. So in in a suburb of that called Bethesda. I went to a school in DC called St. Albans. And, you know, admittedly, I'm very different than I was when I was growing up. I think that that's one of the, the things that I've learned over time is people, will, people are, are capable of a tremendous amount of change. We're capable of reinventing ourselves. We're capable of becoming what, what we, would, we would like to be. And this happens over a great length of time. So in high school, all I really wanted to do was, was play sports. I played baseball and golf, and I also wrestled. And I told everyone ever, I was like, look, I'm going to play professional golf and in 10 years, you'll see me on the PGA tour. Like that's what I'm going to do. And in hindsight, maybe I was a little bit delusional, but at the same time, I was very, you know, goal oriented. It was clear about what I was going to do in my mind. And that's something that I've kind of carried on beyond golf, which I obviously had some success in, but not, not enough to, to make a living doing it. But I was a terrible student in high school. It wasn't until my, I think it was my third year of college, I took an economics course. My second year of college, I took an economics course. And I realized that, hey, this is something that's interesting to me that isn't golf or, or baseball or whatever it might be. And that kind of lit my world on fire. And I was like, oh, I want to read as much about this as possible. And I became a, one of my friends it described me as a total academic after that. So it's interesting, obviously a very broad question to look back at my life and say, oh, wow, you know, people would consider me someone that's fairly well-educated now that's, you know, maybe like even a bit of a nerd, whatever it might be. And, you know, 16-year-old Ken would be like, who the hell is that guy, right? (laughs) And I love that, right? Like to me, that's the coolest thing is that I've been able to say, oh, like each avenue of my life has changed and I've kind of seen a broader picture of who I'd like to become and I still see a lot broader picture of who I might become or, or who I might be, whatever it is. But I can guarantee you in 10 years, I'll probably be, hopefully, be more nuanced, a, a different person, have maybe even different views, different takes, and hopefully, again, be maybe uh, a lot better, hopefully at public speaking too. So, I mean, that's, that's a powerful concept there that, around that reinvention, right? Like, I mean, I've had to reinvent myself, I think, several times over the years as well, more, you know, more so recently in later stages in life. But I think some people will think that just because they have these qualities that they remain fixed, that they are unable to change them, they're unable to change these aspects about themselves, that reinvention is not something that is possible for them. So they're just going to continue on this path and just, you know, continue living up to 
whatever box they've kind of put themselves in. What do you say to people who are kind of, you know, not what do you say, but what would you say if, if given the opportunity to, to help somebody see things differently? So a big thing for me is my environment. So I am someone, I realize very quickly, if I like study in a quiet room, I'm way more effective. If I set out everything that I'm going to do and make it as easy for myself to succeed as possible, I'm likely going to find more success than if I just started with everything jumbled. And the environment isn't just like your work setup. The environment is where you live, your life setup, who you, you speak with, who, who you engage with on a day-to-day -day basis. So to me, I moved around quite a bit for college and, and after college geographically. So I went from, I was in South Carolina. I did some of my undergrad there. And then I transferred to Towson in Baltimore. Then I, then I finished school. I played golf in Florida. I went back to school for grad school in Virginia. This is a long story, but I promise it'll get somewhere. <laughs> uh, went to Virginia, worked in DC for a while. Then I moved out to Chicago, stayed in Chicago for four or five years. Then I moved out here. But each of those times when I made a geographic change, I was able to reinvent myself in that area. I, I could make new friends. I could learn new things. I could start new jobs. I could basically recreate the bubble that I wanted to. I could drop some of the bad stuff from the, the, the last place and add new good stuff to the new place. And I could also, everywhere I went, I could take with me the things that I liked or enjoyed. And to me, I really enjoyed moving around geographically and doing that fairly frequently because it allowed me to have a clean break from the Ken who I was in that last location and, you know, start building this Ken who I am in this new location. And I've always done it that way. And, you know, that's probably not the best way. You can definitely make change in your home. I mean, I would do this thing where every six months I'd reorganize my office or my bedroom. So it'd be a fresh take, a fresh perspective. But it's incredibly powerful uh, how these just like small changes can really get you to think about changing, like changing your environment. That's why people like, you know, they go through a breakup, they'll dye their hair or something, right? Because you're putting on that different character, you're becoming that other person, you're becoming who you'd like to be, who, who the last person was that wasn't living up to standards, whatever that might be. So, yeah, I, I think that my recommendation would be to just like not pick up and leave. But figure out a way to shake things up, figure out a way to look at things from a different perspective, through new eyes, through a different, you know, a different doing your work in a different chair, anything along those lines can really help. Yeah, I think, I mean, just being able to change your beliefs, just trying on a new belief system, right, is a way that you can reinvent yourself, right? You can be someone who thinks that, oh, I've, you know, my intelligence is like my shoe size, it is fixed, it is just going to be what it is. But you can choose to remove that belief system, install a new one, and reinvent yourself that way, right? And just kind of reinvent the way you think about things. And that is an easy way to do that while kind of staying put, staying in place, right? Without having to really change your surroundings, but just change the, the internal stuff. Have you ever had to do that in your life? Yeah, I, I, in, in high school growing up, I mean, this is the idea of a growth versus fixed mindset. I didn't think I was very smart. I would never get very good grades. I would never really excel in my classes. And admittedly, I went to a pretty small private school where I think 20 of the 60 kids in my graduating class went to Ivy League schools. So everyone was really smart. And I felt like an idiot compared to a lot of these people. And 
looking back, those other kids were working so hard to get into really good schools. And I was just out there playing baseball and like barely doing my homework and I, I didn't care. Right. But I, I couldn't make that difference. I just thought it was dumb. I thought it was like a fixed thing that I couldn't control. And then once I got into college, once I started seeing some success, I realized, oh, like I can study and I can like, compete. Like I can eventually, I think I, I rose, I graduated at the top of my class in economics at Towson, right? And I was able to do this over time, but I had to believe that I was in the same ballpark. I had to believe that I could compete. I had to believe that I was capable of, of doing well academically or that I, I wouldn't say I, I think that I'm smart now. I think in, intelligence is a function of a lot of things and that's not something we should ever really care too much about like you can be successful without being too bright you just have to understand how systems work whatever that might be so that's that's something my, my entire academic career has been characterized by understanding that you can do something believing that you're capable of growth or change over time and eventually tackling those things head on and, and proving to yourself that you can do those things. So it's kind of a, that step process. You've got to believe, you've got to see some success, and then you've got to just run with it uh, as much as you can over time. It's interesting. I've been reading this book while well, listening to it. It's an audio book. It's called, I think it's The Luck Factor by Richard Weissman. I just finished reading it. And it's interesting to see that, you know, lucky people have a certain way that they view the world. It's literally just a belief system that you just think things will happen. It's not like the, the what's that thing called? The law of attraction like that that to me is complete nonsense but just having an open mind and and trying on new beliefs trying on new ways of doing things shaking stuff up and kicking up dust and seeing what happens i think you can create your own luck and you can reinvent yourself in that way i have to check that book out i I, so that's something i'm also very fascinated with is that luck is about interpretation right so i could get I could get stung by a bee and say, oh, that's awful luck. Or I could get stung by a bee and I'd have to go to the, um, let's say I'm allergic to it. It's even worse, right? But I have to go to the hospital and I meet the love of my life and I get married in 10 years, right? Like some would say getting stung by that bee was really lucky. If you interpret it that way of like, oh, these are the good things that could have possibly happened from it. Or if you interpret it as like, oh, you know, even a more, a smaller microcosm of that is like, you know, when I get stung by a bee, I'm lucky because I get a feel pain and like, I wouldn't understand what pleasure was without understanding like a little bit about what pain is or like the bad things. You don't understand what, what's great about your life if you don't understand what's on the flip side of that. So to me, it's all like psychological, right? Like everything, every, I consider myself very lucky because, you know, everything that, that happens to me, I would imagine I can turn almost in, into a positive spin, right? And yeah. um, when you have that philosophy, I think you're a lot happier in general. I'm no expert on this, but I do yeah. consider myself a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. So I think you'd enjoy that book because it, it will confirm a lot of what it is that you already hold as belief. So it's definitely, definitely awesome. Definitely a good one worth checking out. I kind of go through these seasons of intellectual curiosity. And right now, luck is something I've been really studying a lot of. So I'm just getting my hands on you know a lot of different books. Um, I tend to read several books at once. So the, the Luck Factor by Richard Weissman, another one I'm reading right now is called The Success Equation. This is by Michael Mobison. It's Untangling Skill and Luck in Business, Sports, and Investing. So when I was- I that one out too. Yeah, I was interviewing Annie Duke. She wrote Thinking in Bets and she suggested this book for me. And I was like, all right, well, if Annie Duke suggested it, then you know, I got to check it out. And then I was interviewing Scott Page, who wrote The Model Thinker, and he recommended it. And I was like, all right, well, if these two brilliant people are saying to read the book, then I should. So 
that one's a good one. And then serendipity mindset. And another one is chase chance and creativity. So just really go hard on like these intellectual curiosity seasons that I'm in. Are you right now curious or interested about anything? So I, I love those types of things. Uh, I, I want to caveat before that. I loved thinking in bets. That's one of my favorite books. I recommend that all the time. So Change I'm, uh, yeah, I'm super impressed that you got Annie Duke on, on here. I, I watched her on TV playing poker when I was, I don't want to make her feel advanced <laughs> in age, but when I was a kid. Yeah, so, uh, but uh, I mean, that's, that philosophy also is fascinating to me. I'm sure people can tune into your episode with her to learn more about that. Me, me telling the philosophy wouldn't mean quite, quite as much. So uh, I, I actually do the same thing. I find that I work very effectively in cycles rather than like a constant burn over the course of the year. I basically work, I'm like really focused for a month and then I have to take a month off and I do that for six months and I don't truly take six months off. There's kind of that slow burn, emails, interviews, whatever that might be. But for some reason, maybe it's because I've been in school for longer than most people, like working off a quarter system or something like that, the longer chunks of focus and then longer chunks of relaxation has been what makes the most sense for me. And it also makes it so that I'm not quite as effective in a nine to five job. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, right now, I'm really focused on understanding how to build things. One of the focuses of my YouTube channel going forward is going to be about building more projects and getting my hands dirty. Like I've, I do data science work on my day job. I have obviously done a lot of school to, to build the skill set, but I'm not applying it as much as I, I feel that I should be. And so I'm really focusing on saying, hey, over the course of a year, let's say I make 10 data science projects. I do a little less than one a month. One, for me, that's an incredible learning experience. That is by far the best way to learn. But two, I put a lot of really cool stuff out into the world, right? If I can make, let's say, like 10 things that could potentially become useful products to someone, like I've created the MVP, I've gone and I've, you know, basically promoted these things for people to go see. And like, there's a, not a non-zero chance that one of those could become a business. One of those could be something more than just something that I coded and then, and then, you know, threw up and never thought about it again. And I love that concept of building something that's self-sustaining, of building something that is, that can generate momentum and that could be out there, that can develop its own kind of, you know, community or, or like aura about it. And although that's not super concrete, that's like what my focus is on right now is like, what skills do I need? You know, like, okay, I have to have a, probably a bit more software development skills than I currently have. I probably should go a little deeper in a lot of the data science toolkits. I'm really excited because I haven't been that, ex that like that jazzed about technical stuff for the last like six months. And then now I'm like really excited about learning technical stuff, which almost never happens. So I'm trying to ride it as hard as I can. <laughs> I dig it, man. I mean, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to build something big, right? Even if it's just small to start, who knows what it can blossom into. So, so an overarching theme over the last five years for you has been uh, this interest in data and data science. How did that happen? How did you find your way into the data world? So I found my way into data from sports. I, as I mentioned in, in high school and most of college, all I cared about was playing baseball and golf, and then eventually just golf. And it came out of just selfish greed for self-improvement. I wanted to play better. 
And I started kind of tracking my stats on the golf course. I started evaluating my performance. I started looking at areas of my game that I could really improve. And it just wasn't enough. I started looking into statistics. I was like, oh, I can look at the standard deviation on some of my different shots, on different hole types, whatever that might be. And then I started to see pretty good improvement in my game from understanding it better. Inevitably, I wanted to understand performance, not just in my game, but also in professionals or my teammates or whoever that might be. So I started to get more involved with different statistics, some different modeling. I thought that linear regression was cool. It lets me predict an outcome or some binary classification is cool. It helps me to say if someone's going to win or not win, whatever that might be. Or it can give me a probability of if someone uh, is expected to win or not. So I started going down this rabbit hole and I started asking more and more questions. And it seemed like computer science and statistics had the most answers. So I kept learning more and more about these topics. And then I was working, I just finished my master's in like the global commerce. And I'd learned some skills there, some SQL, some SPSS, could do some basic stats. And I just hit a wall. I was like, there isn't much further I can go in answering these questions with what I know now. I feel like I really have to do something serious to learn these skills if I want to keep asking these questions and keep being able to find solutions to them. So I went back and did my master's in computer science and I just immersed myself in the technical stuff. And I found that pretty much everything I wanted to answer or the, the steps to being able to answer these questions, to build a model, whatever that is, they were pretty clear in front of me when I was studying that. All that stuff, it was really fuzzy and it started to get a little clearer, a little clearer. And hopefully now most of the questions that, that I have, I can answer with the tools that I also have. This is a question somebody, not somebody, but many people always ask me during office hours is, do I need graduate training to become a data scientist? What is your view on that? I, absolutely not. I, I don't think that that's a requirement. I think that I personally got a lot of value from it because I learned how to school well, right? I learned how to like play the game, work in that ecosystem well. And grad school for me, it was like, I know how to school. I know how to perform well and learn within this ecosystem. If I want to learn something new, going back to school makes sense for me because that's like, I'm good at it that way. If someone has a hacker mentality where they've learned a lot of stuff online, they've learned to program themselves, perhaps they've learned from certificates, whatever that might be, you can learn everything that there is that they teach you in grad school, pretty much any grad school online for either very cheap or for free. You just have to sit down and do it. And you have to be able to structure your time. You have to be able to be motivated enough or organized enough to, to get through that. But there is, if I had the capability to do that when I was first considering grad school, I would have absolutely forgotten grad school and just spent that amount of time building projects or learning a little bit and, and, and applying it somewhere. Because if you think about however many hours you spend in grad school, if you took all of that time and spent it building projects or doing data science or building something out, that portfolio you built would just be so much more valuable than anything that you did in grad school to begin with. I mean, that's something that people get hired from is that their portfolio, their, the, the work that they've done is a pretty good predictor of the work that they will do. Absolutely agree with you. Portfolios are super, super important. I think way more important than actual education. And 
you know, people always toss it back to me, but like, oh, well, you have a master's degree in math and statistics. So how can you say that we you don't need, you know, well, look, man, I was a confused kid in my late twenties and I wasn't even a kid. I was a confused ass grown man who did not want to, did not know what he wanted to do with his life. So what did I do? Went to grad school. Like, so I did that, that twice. I was yeah. like, I don't know what to do. When in doubt, go back to school. Yeah. And that's bit me. I'm in a ton of student debt, right? I oh, mean, fortunately yeah. I can cover it, but still it's like, that's a serious decision to make. I mean, you're talking about, at least in the US, like hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially. And I don't recommend anyone absorbing that much debt without very seriously considering it beforehand. Yeah. And I mean, th- this might be bad advice, but the advice that I tend to give is if you're like, let's say you are in like India or China or Korea and you see the only way for you to get out of your country and into the U.S. to be closer to the whatever it is you want to be closer to and you see that grad school is the only way to get you there, then maybe it might be a good idea. But just doing it because you think you need to do it to get a job, I don't think is a, a good line of thought. No, I, I, I completely agree. Yeah, I kind of view you very much so as an as educator, right? With your writings, with your YouTube and, and the content you're creating, very much so educational. How do you think the education ecosystem, for lack of a better word, is going to be changed going forward, let's say, you know, over the next 10 to 15 years? Do you think now that education is democratized, so to speak, you know, there is so many free resources to learn that going to college is going to be something that people need to do? That's a tough question. So I think that actual capabilities lags what companies and people believe by quite a long distance. So I think that, you know, for me, if I was completely in charge of whatever company I'm running in two, three years, I'd be very comfortable hiring someone who does not have a college degree who is self-taught, who went through certificates, who can prove that, that they've done whatever they've done through a portfolio. I don't think large corporations or a lot of companies that are less flexible are as interested in doing that. One, because that's a very useful heuristic for dealing with a lot of candidates. So to me, I believe that what you can learn online is on par, if not better in some cases than what you can learn in school and a lot cheaper. But for the sentiment within the companies to reach that, I think it's going to take a lot longer time. You know, it's it's a very interesting like space and question that that I honestly ask myself a lot is that you know, if someone was to come in and say, "Oh, I don't have a college degree, but I've done this, this, and this," like would I look at them differently? And no one's done that yet, so I'm still trying to to figure that out. <laughs> I tend to take on the color of whoever I'm being virtually mentored under. Right now, like James Altucher is somebody who's like been a huge virtual mentor for me. I'm just been reading a lot of his books, listening to his podcast. And he always talks about not going to school because of the crippling amount of student debt that students get placed under. Now that education is democratized, everything's online. You can just educate yourself in multiple disciplines and just be a more well-rounded person than just this one path. So, I mean... I'm I'm just talking out loud, you're thinking out loud. And like, you know, I just had a a, a kid seven months ago. I don't know if Congrats. I would force him. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I don't know if I would force him to go to college. I would force him to pick up skills and learn skills and cultivate interest in diverse areas and maybe put them together and combine them in unique ways so that he becomes the type of person that you cannot go to school to become. And I think that is more, way more powerful, way more valuable is if you become the type of person that 
somebody cannot go to school to become. And that just comes from combining unique skills in a bunch of different areas. I think that, so school's interesting. For a lot of kids, it's the first opportunity to get out of the house, be completely on their own. And I think that that's an incredibly valuable learning experience. I became a completely different person after I left home for the first time because I realized that there were some challenges that my, couldn't, my parents couldn't fix. There are some things that I had to learn. There are some things that I had to do completely independently. And in you know, 2020 going forward, there's a chance that that is taken out of, of the school equation for the, a large part. Like most people aren't on campus right now. Most people aren't doing college things. And it's really hard for me to justify if, if I were a student paying full price for my tuition when I'm going to all my classes online because a university is a lot more than that. There's a huge social dynamic. There's this huge like, oh, can I go to a new place and make new friends? Can I develop interpersonal skills? Can I do, you know, can I understand how to like handle my alcohol? Can I, can I you know, do some things like that, right? And, um, you know, I, I don't think anyone should be going to college just to party, but at the same time, there's a whole like, like subcontext of skills that you learn that aren't just purely academic. And if that's not going to be a part of traditional college going forward, it's really hard to justify that price tag that you talked about. So, you know, I, I am inclined to agree that the, the current education system is pretty, pretty janky in the face of everything that's going on in the world right now. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. Yeah, definitely, man. The world is definitely changing. Uh, so since we're on the path of, of education and talking about learning things. You recently did the 66 days of data science challenge where you decided to start learning data science over. So talk to us about kind of a couple of things, I guess, first, why 66 days? Everybody loves hundred days. Uh, why 66 days? And what do you think were some of the hardest things to unlearn in that process? So just a high level of what the challenge is, is the idea is to create really good habits around learning data science daily and also sharing your work. I think that habits carry you over the course of your entire career and prove very valuable. Whereas if you were to just do a month of really hard work or six, you know, or, or 50, 166 days, whatever it is, of really hard work and you just put it down forever, that would serve virtually no purpose if you didn't continue on at some point. So 66 days comes from James Clear, who wrote the book Atomic Habits. And if I recall correctly, it's the average number of days that it takes for someone to truly ingrain a habit. And so the idea is that you're, the habits you're creating are one, just learning something about data science every day. And you don't have to do that much. Like at a bare minimum, you do five minutes. But it's almost impossible to not do five minutes of work in a day if you remember before 12, I mean, before 11.55 p.m. Right? That's something that even if you had the busiest day ever, you could watch a video, you could do something, you could still get it done. Uh, the second part is I think sharing your work and engaging in a community is also extremely important, especially if you're interested in getting a job. 
So the other part of that is whatever you learned or whatever you did that day, you should share it on with a community, whether that's Twitter, whether it's the 66 days of data discord, whether that's LinkedIn, just putting it out there, letting people know what you worked on what you worked on is a good practice in sharing, but it also helps to keep you accountable. You know, other people are looking at it. You're going to try just that little bit harder. So getting into why uh, like the actual meat of what I did is I went back, I, I got quite a few different books. And the hardest thing for me to, to unlearn was some of my like laziness and apathy around syntax. A lot of the things I do, there's better ways to do it that aren't all that more complicated or sometimes they're even simpler. And I've just always done something in a certain way from when I first started coding. And I like just never thought of learning it a different way. An example of this would be like pipelines in, in, uh, in scikit-learn. Like they're a really good tool they make your models a lot more easy to deploy. It's a good system. And it's not hard to use it. Like the concept is very simple. But I've always just used workarounds. I've just written a bunch of other like helper functions, whatever that was, because I, I'd never learned it in the first place. Or I'd like read about it. And I was like, oh, I don't need this. I already have all this other infrastructure in place. So to me, that was really refreshing is that, wow, if I build a better foundation, if I build a, something that's more stable, all of my work becomes better and more scalable. What would you say was your least favorite thing to relearn about data science? Hmm. That's a good question. I think that, I, I don't think I had a least favorite thing. You know, one of the things that really helps me learn is I find a way to trick myself to love all, all the whatever I'm learning right now. And that's probably the greatest skill I've ever developed is I can get like really excited about something really stupid. Um, and you know, it's a psychological trick. It's baiting yourself into something, but that's been how I've, I've been able to learn some things that most people would think were, were a little dry or a little boring. That's a good mental habit to have is to take a negative thought that enters your mind and just flip it. Like anytime I think something negative, I let that be a trigger to another habit loop to then flip it automatically to something positive. But yeah, Atomic Habits, great book. I was reading, I think it was, yes, it was 5am Club by Robin Sharma. And he talks about that 66 days as well. And that like when you're installing a new habit, there's like the period where it's like the, the honeymoon phase. And then there's like the middle part where you're destroying your old self, destroying your old habit. Then then it's properly being being installed. I thought that was a very fascinating uh, process. In that process of, of acquiring new habits for learning and learning data science, what is one habit that you would go back and maybe not learn or not pick up because you found that it's completely unrelated to like real world data science? Hmm. I think when I learn something, or when I'm trying to start a new project, whatever that may be, something I jump to is I always look at the, the docs first, or I always, I always go just a little bit too hard on understanding everything. So I'll read all the docs, I'll read all the, and try and fit it together. I think sometimes just prototyping, like making toy models that work before you go in and do all that stuff to a, like a too much of an advanced degree is is something that I would like to create more of a habit around doing. It's just like get something small to work, build on it, build on it, build on it, you know, put some clay on it here and there and it becomes something bigger rather than like, okay, this has, we build this part and it has to connect to this part and, and do this later. 
especially with data science where it is largely exploratory, that's something I'd like to improve on. I like that. Just jumping right into taking small steps to make it work rather than being paralyzed by theory or paralyzed by like, you know, thinking about it, I guess. Yeah. That's when I get overwhelmed is when the problem's too big. If I break it down, it's very manageable, but maybe the, the better thing is like just breaking everything down into smaller, more manageable chunks. I used to be good at that. I got not as good at it and hope I'm getting better at it again. So when you're breaking large problems down into chunks, do you have like a systematic way to do it or does that vary between whatever problem you're facing at the time? It really, it really varies on the, on the, like based on the problem. The process I take is the same though. I'll like get a whiteboard out. I'll like draw a bunch of arrows, how things are connected. I'll put each step that I need to take to, to get, each chunk of it done. And it's kind of like one of those like fishbone maps where there's like a, a, an infrastructure, something similar to that. So you probably get a lot of people asking you questions about how to break into data science, how to get into the data science space. What would you say is your favorite question that people ask you about breaking into data science? Hmm. I like when people ask questions specific to their situation that they couldn't get from one of my videos. Because I make videos to be scalable. I make them to answer big and broad questions. If I had to answer every, like every time someone's like, do I need math for data science? I would go crazy because it gets asked so much. So I made a video about it, it makes it scalable. If someone says, I'm working through this specific project problem, I'm trying to understand how this could be more valuable to an end user. Do you think this option or this option makes the most sense? That, that's a good question to me because I can give a very clear answer. Um, may, maybe this is a better flipped around to like, what's the best question philosophy? If someone asks me something specific that I have not said before in one of my videos or I, I haven't harped on, I like those questions because it's something new to me as well. What do you think is the most underrated skill that a data scientist could have? I, I don't know if it's a skill or, or a, a built up attribute. But curiosity is something that, that always has been valuable on my end. Curiosity is what keeps you working on something, even when you're really frustrated and you're going nuts and it's not working because that happens so often. Curiosity is what encourages you to keep learning new skills, which you're inevitably going to need in this profession. Curiosity is what gets you asking questions that other people might not have thought of that can really drive value for yourself or for a business or whatever that might be. So the kernel of what data science is, in my opinion, is based around, hey, I have this question, can I solve it? And the people that have a lot of these questions and that burning desire to have them answered are the ones that are willing to put in the work. And they're also the ones that create some pretty awesome stuff. Absolutely love it, man. Curiosity is super, super underrated. And you think that in a profession where science is in the title that people would assume that they should possess that quality. And it's something you can cultivate for yourself too. It's not like you're just born with the curiosity gene. Like you can cultivate just by asking questions. I think one of the best ways to do that is like that. I think it's called the five whys where you just keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper and just ask why five times pretty much. And that helps you understand and get more curious about things. And just being resourceful, I think, is a super underrated skill. We talked about how people ask you questions on something that you've already discussed that they could have found with a quick search. Making good use of Google 
is a very, very underrated skill. Being resourceful, being able to find information for yourself, I think is a very, very underrated skill. So I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think, again, I love all of the interaction with, with my stuff, my channel, all these things. But something that is a bit frustrating, people are continually asking me, what project should I do? What, what, what should I build out? And I'm happy to say, look, do something with regression or classification or build a neural net. But the content of the project should be something that, that you're interested in. I mean, there are so many questions that I would love to have the answer to that probably could be answered with data science. And my problem is I don't have enough time, right? So it, it's, it's hard for me to be like, you know, the most important skill you can have is the one where you're creating those questions or you're thinking of those things to answer. So it's, it's completely robbing whoever's asking that of the most important skill that they could possibly have. And it's depriving them of that ability to start working on it. And so it's, it's hard for me to, to articulate that without sounding like kind of an asshole. So no, no, dude, like you, you don't at all uh, appreciate that answer. And uh, leads me to my next question then is, when it comes to projects, what do you think is more important, content or process? Interesting. I'd probably say for me, content, because who is the, the project for? You know, if someone had the best process ever on the, like the Titanic data set, I probably wouldn't hire that person. I don't, I don't, I don't care. They didn't solve anything new. They're not helping anyone else. If someone helped a charity save $150,000 a year, but they had the, a pretty crappy code base. They didn't comment anything. They took about, you know, they went through some kind of obtuse steps. It's still impressive. They saved someone actual money, right? They, they were able to make impact with the data that they had, with the tools that they had. You could probably teach them to comment their code or be a bit more organized or use GitHub, whatever it is. But can you teach them to understand that business value as easily? or to, to create an impact or like impact an organization like that, I don't see as clear a path to teaching that as some of the technical stuff. So for me, in that, again, specific scenario, I think process is very important, but I personally value that content more. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that. I'm, I'm more of kind of like the, on the process end of the spectrum in the sense that, I mean, obviously I do not advocate anybody doing a project based on Iris or MNEST or Titanic. Like that is not interesting. Find a unique problem statement. But I guess to me, like when I'm reviewing somebody's resume, like it doesn't matter if they use linear regression or neural net or whatever, like that part doesn't matter to me. What matters is like the way they think through from an ambiguous problem statement, how they go from data to decisions and the, everything that happens in between. I, I kind of value that more than like what specific algorithm you used. 100% agree. I, I couldn't care less. It, yeah. Honestly, the concept of uh, Occam's razor mm -hmm. is that you want someone to use the most efficient algorithm for the use case that produces similar results. Right. So I hate seeing someone use like a, a really advanced neural net when it's like, oh, you could have done that with logistic regression and gotten the same results. I, I think it's interesting where it's kind of a blurred line between process and content because for me, you had to have done something right in the process to get to a good outcome, but it's not, I think a process is how clearly it's documented, how like much it makes sense from the outside looking in. You can see the logical steps, 
But inevitably, in order to create value, I think you do need some semblance of process or else you're just lucky. Yeah. What do you think the biggest misconception data scientists have about data science? Interesting. It's hard to group all data scientists together, but I think some people within the data science community think that everything can be boiled down to numbers. And, you know, if we can't understand it with numbers, there's no hope in trying to improve it or understand it at all. And that that can be really challenging. I think that humans are still some of the most powerful computers walking around. And, you know, we're we're incredibly attuned to, uh, in particular, speech or or some of these different systems. And we can still make good decisions beyond what a computer can if we're trained properly. And so sometimes the solution to everything isn't data science. Now I was working, we had a project with a pretty big technology company and they kept everything that we would throw out there like data science, machine learning is the answer, what's the question? And that's not how you can solve problems. Like you solve problems by identifying the problem and realizing that data science, machine learning isn't always the answer. Sometimes it's far simpler. Sometimes it's more complex. But there is a tendency to jump and just throw everything in a model um, and and just believe that data science is the end all be all. What would you say is the biggest misconception that aspiring data scientists have about data science? That you need to get into data science in a traditional manner. Everyone thinks that there's a specific path that everyone takes to get into the field. And from what I've understood from everyone who I've talked to, breaking in is very different for every single person. There's no one size fits all approach. And if you come from, let's say, a very cookie cutter background, that's probably going to be less interesting to employers. Employers want to hire people that are unique, that bring something different than the other people on the team. So rather than talking down the things that make you unique or different. You should talk them up, but talk them up in the, and explain why that makes you more valuable um, or makes you valuable to a company. And then they can assume that you're more valuable than the other people applying. But, you know, that idea that it has to be done a certain way, uh, you know, like I have to get a master's degree, I have to do this, I have to do that. That's completely, completely bogus from the empirical data that, that I've collected through a lot of interviews. No, 100% agree with you, man. And just the, in case anybody cares about my opinion, uh, I would say that the biggest misconception that data scientists have about data science is that your job is not to make a more accurate model. Your job is to just make the company more money or help them save money. And sometimes you spending your time on trying to squeeze a little bit more accuracy out of your model is costing the company money. So think about the impact that your time spent on these little activities has in the big picture. And for aspiring data scientists, I would say that they think that they need all the skills right now from the get-go, otherwise they can't get a job, which we've talked about is completely not true. Speaking about big picture, man, what, what does that mean to you when, when somebody says big picture? How, how does that, um, you know, what does that mean to you? Big picture. How do I put this? It, it depends on how I frame it, right? So the big picture for me is like, what would, I, what would I like to, what type of impact would I like to leave on the world? You know, what would I like written on my gravestone or in my obituary? That's something that I think is how I personally view the big picture. 
anything that happens to me on a day-to-day basis is important, but I know it'll all pass, you know, unless someone you know, very close to me passes away or something very grave like that happens. Almost nothing that I do, like in one, no, almost no single event that I have on a day-to-day basis is going to change the course of my entire life, right? There's a bunch of, bunch of little small events that happen over the course of a bunch of days. But everything that, that I do is focused on trying to make the most positive impact, positive change, teach the most people over the course of my life. I mean, that could obviously change. But, you know, YouTube is just hopefully, for me, a small piece in the puzzle of it's one way that I can communicate with people that I can connect with people that I can meet other people, that I can, you know, hopefully help other people. I mean, I, I also do make some income from that. So it's like, you know, one other way that I can also, um, you know, fund whatever I do, mostly paying back my student loans. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting to think about that question because I don't, I have big picture goals, but I don't, I just read them every day and I don't, I, I just let them program me. I don't have to put too much conscious thought into it. I dig that, man. So, question is going to be completely disconnected here now but you like you, there is so much to learn right so much to know when it comes to to the field when it comes to the world how do you kind of decide what it is that you're going to spend time learning or developing next does that come from the big picture goals you have like do you s- schedule those in i guess for lack of a better word or how do you how do you let that that unfold for yourself so it's a hybrid. So it's 50-50. Like these are things that, I, that I'm interested in, but there's also this me collecting data and understanding the environment. So uh, depending on when this comes out, I might have the video out already, but my video for, I guess I'm hoping to get it out this week. We'll see if that happens. But I built a leaderboard for my, uh, for the, my YouTube subscribers. And so that, you know, I want to really encourage people to make meaningful contributions to this community. So a meaningful contribution is one like where they actually comment, but also where other people have liked that comment. That's one way of indicating that there's value associated with that. So the leaderboard is something I'll give away a bunch of prizes at the end of the months or the end of the years. That's a way I can give back, but I can also really encourage and incentivize people to make and contribute to this thing that I love and hopefully make it even better than it is. But that's a combination of, oh, I saw this opportunity. I fooled around with the, the YouTube API. I, mean, I know this is possible. But also like, oh, I'd love to grow my YouTube channel. I'd love to make this a, a better, a happier, uh, a more communicative place. How do I do that? And so it's like, well, I've observed these things. I've observed how comments are done on other channels. Like those two things eventually kind of meet in the middle and it culminates in, in a project like this. I like that. Like you're, you're letting just a couple of disparate things or not necessarily disparate, but you're just combining and finding the intersection between two ideas and just using that to explore possibilities. Did, did I kind of get that right? Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's interesting. I don't have uh, for ideation or for creation or any of these things, there isn't necessarily a tried and true uh, like system, right? There isn't something that is very clear to me. It drives me a lot of it is like I'm, I'm always thinking and I'm always ideating. I spend a lot of time doing like nothing. And if something comes to me, I write it down. And like, if you're trying to think of an idea on the spot, it's really hard. Right. But if you have a notebook like next to you and it's always, these things are always kind of 
rolling around in the back of your mind when you're reading, when you're sleeping, when you're eating, and you're just scribbling them down occasionally, you look over and you have 20 ideas or, or, or 20 things, projects that you'd like to do, and then you can order those and you can rank them. And you're like, this makes the most sense because it scratches my itch short term and also can provide a ton of value long term. I think that kind of got away from how do I choose, but it just, sometimes it just all feels right. And it's like, this is what I should be working on. This makes the most sense right now. Yeah. Yeah. I dig it, man. Yeah. Like I, I have an idea journal. I have an idea practice every morning where it's nice. you know, very much governed by routines because I feel like having routines in place, having habits in place just allows for more creative thinking. One of my habits that I have every morning is writing 10 ideas in my idea journal. What book do you get? I used to do that. I, um, this I talked that. about that really recently too. In one of my most recent videos, I talked about that uh, for uh, like how to, how to find a data science project. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what book it was from. James Altucher wrote about that in Choose Yourself. And yeah, um, he, he talks, that's where I got it from. He writes about this a lot. Um, so you recently launched a podcast, the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast. Talks about that podcast. Who's it for? What's it about? What's your, your vision for it? So I've started for two reasons. So the first reason is I think it's just, we learn the best from really good examples that are very specific, that are clear. And we can sometimes put ourselves in other shoes when they talk about their life or their story or when they're getting into data science. And so you know, just like you, I wanted to be able to talk to people and have them share their story so that other people could learn from it. You know, it's one thing to learn uh, data science from a textbook or from a course or from school, but all the other things that come with data science, they come with learning, they come with that philosophy are, are pretty foreign to a lot of people. And I think that just listening to smart people talk, me not being one of them, my guests, you can really pick up a lot about not only how to have success in data science, but how to have personal growth and how to create a, a life or a career that you're really excited about. And I would hope that the podcast kind of transcends just data science and is more focused on, you know, very, very similar to what you're doing. Like, how do you learn well? How do you, how do you think about problems? How do you optimize your life for, for happiness, for health, for, for family, whatever those things might be? And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also very focused on content creation. That's something that's brought me a lot of joy. And uh, I'm, trying to integrate that in is how do you to really build good content that's useful to people and that you're passionate about as well. The other reason is that I just wanted another excuse to talk to really cool people. And if you have a podcast with a certain number of listens or downloads or followers, then it's a lot easier to, to get them on, on the line and to, to get them in the door. And that, that's something that I've learned from this whole experience is that you know, it's really easy to get someone to respond to your email, just have 100,000 YouTube subscribers. And that's <laughs> but but that's all obviously a combination of, of the stuff you build and, and working and 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 uh, creating something because, you know, if let's say we're just in a, in a in a giant vast plane, right? And all the stuff you have online is like buildings or stuff you've accumulated and you're sitting on top of it, right? Uh, if you're shouting at someone or you're like waving a sign, let's say it's an email, whoever you're like waving at is more likely to see that one because you're so much higher than everyone else. It's like a, it's like a monument or whatever it might be. And you know, that's been a big thing for me is how do I build enough stuff so that I get to the front of the line if I want to talk to someone 
people come to me, if they are interested in me working with them, the opportunities kind of come my way rather than me just going out and, and having to get stuff all the time. Cause that's, you know, that's a pain, but it's obviously hard work. It's creating a lot of stuff, but it definitely, definitely pays dividends. Yeah, I mean, your character, your reputation, these are things that you can build that let you take advantages of opportunities that other people might think is luck. But really, you know that it wasn't luck. It's because you've built this character, you've built this reputation. And at the end of the day, man, your character becomes your destiny, right? So if you build this character and reputation and you just attract that type of thing back to you, right? Definitely, yeah. Uh, Definitely looking forward to to seeing more awesome stuff from the show, and uh, really really excited yeah, we'll to have to you see. on. Oh, definitely, man. That'd be a that'd be the most uh, skipped over episode if you brought me on. <laughs> so, False, man. I've uh, gotten pretty good at the thumbnails and the headlines, so we'll, we'll get we'll get a little traffic. Don't worry. Right on, man. So, last formal question before we jump into the random round. I feel like you might have touched on this a little bit, but you know, gonna ask it anyways. It's 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? I'd like to still be alive. Um, so I'd, I'd like one to be remembered for still being alive and still be, be doing a lot of useful and productive stuff. And like hopefully making a difference, hopefully being an educator, hopefully being someone that has created a lot of things that have created a lot of value for people. Like my biggest passion is like building stuff. I mean, that's, why YouTube is such a very natural thing for me is that every video I make is something that I've built and something that I put out in the world. And so if I'm alive that long, I hope I built like everything. <laughs> I think that would be pretty neat. It's like Ken, you know, he was able to build a lot of the things that, that he thought was cool. And hopefully some other people thought those things were cool and valuable as well. And he was able to just keep doing that for his whole life. That's a perfect life for me and still doing it. Sorry. That's awesome, man. Absolutely love that. Uh, let's jump into the random round. First question, if you were to write a fiction novel, what would it be about? What would you title it? What would it be about? That would be interesting. I, I've thought a lot about this. You know, I, I don't read that much fiction, but I would probably want to write a story very loosely based on my life. So it'd still be fiction, but it would be something I really don't know. I haven't thought about that. Probably about someone just building something, someone building something cool that like from the, from the earth to the moon that, that inevitably had some challenges attached to it. And they have a choice where they can either like work hard and it'll be successful or they can kind of just coast and they, they choose working hard and, and building something great over just something that's kind of a uh, good, but, but it didn't maximize their potential. I dig it, man. Have you ever heard of the Winchester mystery house? I have not, no. So it's a house in Northern California in um, like San Jose, Santa Cruz area. I'm pretty sure it's Santa, Santa, San Jose. And it was a house that was built by the gentleman who created the Winchester pistol, right? And, you know, this gun had killed so many people. And when he passed away, apparently his wife was haunted by the souls of everybody who had ever been killed by a winchester pistol and these people said these souls said that you must keep building so she just built this house that has all these like crazy things going on there's like stairways that go nowhere doors that open and just go nowhere and just it's the most crazy amazing house they're just 
reminded me of that just continuously keep building keep building yeah well i'm hoping to be like a really crazy and eccentric old man one day so that'll that'll fit right in i'll just have a bunch of like doors that open and there's just like a brick wall still there when do you think the first video to hit one trillion views on youtube will happen and what will that video be about i'm sure the video has probably already been made and it'll either be a music video or something that like mr beast does Someone that really, if a video is going to explode that much, it's about like mastering the the algorithm and like there has to be some weird psychology stuff going on involved to get that many people to watch it. So it's probably going to be something stupid, like, like a a cat doing something or if if it isn't, if it isn't the first two that I mentioned. Right now, the most viewed video is baby shark which uh, displaced uh, Despacito by Justin Bieber after some, some number of years. Yeah, it's, that's uh, interesting. But yeah, I mean, in line with what you're, you're predicting there. What do you believe that other people think is crazy? What do I believe that other people think is crazy? So I've been like, like fasting for a while, probably three or four years. And I, I feel very good when I do it. My parents, both who are doctors, think I'm a freaking lunatic. And so that's something that there isn't too much uh, like firm, firm science on. There's enough that I'm comfortable doing it. I don't think I'm going to injure myself or anything. But that's something that I, I wouldn't say I swear by it. But it's something that is has had a positive impact on my life. Uh, and I'd probably be like really fat if I didn't. So... Just to be clear, you said you're fasting for three to four years. So have you not eaten anything? <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 I've been, I've been intermittent fasting. So yeah. I, I usually eat from noon till 8 p.m. And then at the beginning of every year, I do a fast for three to four days. I uh, just nice. water and I'll, I might do some electrolytes this year. Nice. But, yeah. um, Back yeah. in my, in my fitter days, which was before I had the baby, uh, intermittent fasting was something I did regularly. And then just like one day a week, I just not eat. Yeah, I can. I like. I like it. Like I, I think it's it's, uh, it's a good for me. It's it's more just a way of t- to train and discipline my character to to just do something difficult, which is just not eat when you're hungry. Uh, what are you currently reading? I just finished a book last night called "Share Your Work." Oh, no, is that Stephen Pressfield? Show Show Your Work. Show Your Work is what it's called. Is that Pressfield um, or is that Seth Godin? No, it's it's neither. Let me, oh. let me pull it out. It was really good. So it was recommended by Ali Abdal, who's another YouTuber. It's by Austin. Oh, Austin uh, Cleon? Cleon, yeah. Yeah, dude. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. Killer. I really liked it. I mean, it's in line with everything I kind of believe already, but it goes a little bit further into how to tell a really good story. It goes further into a lot of the decisions that I'm having to make now. I mean, one of the things in it is is sell out, which I think is kind of funny. I mean, that's something I'll probably never completely be okay with doing. I'm taking on sponsorships and doing those types of things, but I'm really careful of who I work with. I'm really careful of the the image that I have, the things that, that I say for the most part. Um, and I try to be as continuous with who I am in real life and, and who I am online. But it, it's it's just like an interesting book. It's a very... It's a good read. I recommend everyone to read it, uh, whether you're a data scientist, whether you're an artist, whoever, it's fascinating. 
I'll definitely pick that up. Yeah, I've got his book, Steal Like an Artist, which is an amazing book. Uh, his interview that he did with Chase Jarvis on Creative Live, really, really good interview. I think you'll really enjoy that. Yeah, so, I'll check so it out. Check that out. What song do you currently have on repeat? Oh, my goodness. I've just been listening to lo-fi, like, coding music on Spotify on repeat. So no specific song, but it, that playlist is just going nonstop. Lo-fi is my go-to man. You should check out Akira the Dawn. Akira the Dawn. Akira is the Dawn. Man. Oh, yeah. well. He's got this lo-fi Christmas channel going on right now. He, he, yeah, it's amazing, dude. He's, uh, I mean, his other music is, is really dope too. He does, he'll do something like, he'll take, like, do you know David Goggins? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so he'll take uh, just a bunch of words from David Goggins from interviews that he's been on and then he'll just put it to a beat and it'll just be the most insane song ever. Oh, I bet I would love that. I'll send you a few oh. few links. Yeah, uh, he, like he's done. Um, he's done with Naval Ravikant. He's done with Joe Rogan, with Jocko Willink. Uh, he does a lot with um this British philosopher Alan Watts. That stuff to me gets a little bit too out there, so I don't really listen to Alan Watts stuff that much. But yeah, I'll uh, definitely link you to it. So we're going like, to the random. Who's question. gonna carry the boat? <laughs> yeah, dude, you'll enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, random question generator. What's the best compliment you have ever received? Well, I'll, I'll stick this to YouTube. There've been a couple of people that have said that my, like a video of mine is, has made them one get interested in data science and also to help them to get their first internship or job. And that to me is an incredible feeling. I mean, data science is something that I'm very passionate about. And I make videos to share that passion with other people. And if something I created was able to incite passion in someone else, that to me is one of the greatest things that I could do is to sh share what I'm interested in with someone else and have them also be interested. Yeah, man, 100% agree with you. Like, I get compliments like that when I'm, because uh, I'm head, you know, principal mentor at Data Science Dream Job. So that's like 2,500 students that, that I'm in charge of mentoring. And it's, compliments like that when when it's like dude like that little bit of advice he gave me that got my salary bumped up 20k during negotiation and it's like dude that's like such a, a good feeling to just have a positive impact on somebody with just just words man it's not like i'm doing the work for anybody it's not like i'm there coaching them on the spot it's just here's here's some words out of my mouth and brain that might help you um that's yeah, a very empowering feeling man that i agree with you what issue will you always speak your mind about? Interesting. I'll talk my mind about any, pretty much anything, honestly. I, I try to avoid politics as much as I can because I'm one of those people that I don't believe has done enough research to be able to make like intelligent claims. So I'm like, mm -hmm. look, like if we want to talk about something, let me, let me read up on it. But I'm I'm a pretty open book. If someone if someone gives me any question, I'll, I'll give you I'll I'll shoot straight. Yeah, same here, man. People like ask me questions, I'll just go on rants. Let's go on like a three minute long tirade, and then just forget what I was talking about because I lost the point. <laughs> In your group of friends, what role do you play? I don't have any friends. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I like to lead. It's just like a natural inclination of mine, but it doesn't have to be that way. I I like coming up with ideas. I like doing different things. I like feeling like I'm involved, but I would hope that it doesn't 
everything doesn't always have to revolve around me. I just will put the first idea out there. Yeah. Yeah. I view myself as like the philosopher of the group, but then I realize that just because nobody can understand how I speak doesn't necessarily mean that what I'm saying is deep. What incredibly strong opinion do you have that is completely unimportant in the grand scheme of things? Really strong opinion. Let's see here. Oh, I don't like In-N-Out French fries. I think they're garbage. <laughs> As a native Californian, I find that to be heresy. In-N-Out makes great burgers. I think that they're a phenomenal restaurant, but the fries are very like spongy. And it is, it is not my, uh, I'll probably lose a lot of subscribers from this one, but it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. I, I, don't th- I don't think I have any strong opinions about unimportant things. Ken, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online? So the best place to reach me is on YouTube. I still respond to almost every single comment that I get. The next plus place is probably LinkedIn. And then uh, just, again, my name, Kenji. And then Twitter is also a good place at Kenji underscore ds i do not respond to twitter dms but if you at me and it's public i will feel the social pressure and will probably respond so uh those those are the three best places my email is also out there somewhere so if you do enough digging to find that you're welcome to email me as well ken thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come out to the show today i really appreciate you being here yeah thank you so much for having me on this was a pleasure and i'd, I'd love to catch up again soon 